The sermon text for this morning is John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. As we continue our study through the Gospel of John, we read in this text about the third sign that John recorded after Jesus began his earthly ministry. Now some of you who have already read ahead know that uh, verse 54 in this text, verse 54 which reads, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee, identifies this particular sign as the second one. And so you might be asking, if this is identified as the second sign, why are uh, we categorizing it as the third one according to the sermon title? Well, it's because this is the second sign that John records for us in a certain region in Cana of Galilee. Remember that the first one was at the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. And then Jesus left this area and he went to Jerusalem, where John tells us about the second sign that Jesus did, where Jesus cleared or he cleansed the temple. And now Jesus is back. He's back in Cana of Galilee, where John will record the third of Jesus' signs, um, third uh, as a whole of his ministry, but the second one that he did when he had come from Judea of Galilee. And so, as we uh, think about this third sign, it's important to ask ourselves again, what do these signs mean? What is their significance? As we've learned so far in the Gospel of John, these signs point beyond themselves to something very important, something greater than the signs themselves. John the Evangelist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he purposely chose seven important things that Jesus did during his earthly ministry, and he included them in his gospel. And he tells us why in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. There we read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John expressly tells us here that these signs reveal Jesus' glory. They are things that Jesus did that reveal that he is the Messiah sent from God. We read from Isaiah 61 this morning for our first reading, and in that chapter, God, through the prophet Isaiah, he describes what the Messiah will accomplish and and what the Messiah will be like. And so we know that Israel, for hundreds of years, had these great expectations, these great longings for the Messiah to come and to set things right according to the way that God had promised And so John the Evangelist intentionally recorded seven important things that Jesus did that revealed that, in fact, Jesus was the Messiah, that he is the one who was sent by God as he is the one who fulfilled these great expectations that God had laid out in the Old Testament. And these signs, not only did they reveal Jesus' glory, but they also had an apologetic purpose. They had a a persuasive purpose, we might say. They were intended to persuade people to believe in Jesus, 
so that they might be saved. Notice again what John writes in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we might say that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is building a case for why Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John, we know, was one of the apostles. He witnessed the many things that Jesus said and did. Things that he says in his gospel, you know, were they all to be written down? The whole world couldn't contain the books that all those things would need to be recorded in. But he says, I've recorded seven things in particular, seven evidences of Jesus' glory, so that you and I might believe in Jesus. And then that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. And so let us now, considering that, read our text for this morning. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water to wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him, that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, the first thing we notice in this passage is that the Galileans were seeking signs and wonders, as is expressly noted in our text. They were seeking signs and wonders, and this was not a good thing, according to the Lord Jesus. Notice in verse 44 that Jesus and his disciples departed for Galilee from Samaria, and at some point during this two-day trip, uh, Jesus said to his disciples that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. The Lord Jesus knew that he was returning home and that he wouldn't be received with the same kind of joy and faith that he was received in Samaria. And, and that's actually the, the contrast here in our text. Jesus had already experienced a lukewarm response in this area when he did his first sign turning the water into wine 
And now he knew that as he was heading back, that most of the people, most of the Jews, would not receive him in true faith. Remember, if we think back to our study thus far in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, after Jesus cleansed the temple, which was a sure sign that he was, in fact, the Messiah, after Jesus cleansed the temple, recall that it was the Jewish religious leaders who challenged what he was doing. And, and Jesus knew that many of his own people, the Jewish nation, did not have true faith. They, they challenged, they questioned. They were very hesitant to believe. We read, in fact, in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And it seems like, oh, that's great. But then we read, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he received, we see, a sketchy reception in Jerusalem. And then in John chapter 3, who came to speak to him? It was Nicodemus, a religious leader, a Pharisee. He came to Jesus by night. For what purpose? To interrogate Jesus on behalf of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leading body, leading court. And so we compare his reception there in Cana and that first sign and then the way that he was treated in Jerusalem. We compare that to the way that he was received by the Samaritans. Compare the suspicion and the the way that Israel, those in Israel simply sought to see his miracles to the way that he was received when he went to Samaria. Do you remember how he was received in Samaria? After he talked to the Samaritan woman at the well, we know that she excitedly went and told her neighbors about Jesus, and then they began to come to him. And we read in John chapter 4, beginning of verse 39, that Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, John is painting here a very clear contrast. Among the Israelites, among his own people, Jesus' reception was lukewarm. Some doubted him, some were suspicious of him, some questioned him. And some, as Jesus points out, were only following him because of the signs and and the miracles that he was performing. They did not have true faith. They simply wanted to benefit from his miraculous works. And we contrast that with how the Samaritans received Jesus. They joyfully came to him. They they believed in him. They trusted in his word. Their reception of him was unqualified. It was unopposed and it was open-hearted. And where was this? It was in Samaria. It was received from the Samaritans of all people. It was among the Samaritans, right? In an area that, that the Jews hated, among a people that the Jews rejected. 
It was among those people that Jesus had this very warm, this very joyful, very loving reception in faith. It was in Samaria that Jesus was received in true faith. And so Jesus now is saying, I'm returning to my people. I'm returning to Cana. And he knows that he will again receive, will receive another lukewarm uh, reception, that the majority of the people would either only seek him out in order to see a sign or, or a miracle, or in order to, again, question him or openly reject him to his face. And that's what we read in our passage here in verses 45 and, and 48. As we now have this background, this, this understanding of the context, we read in verse 45 that when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And then notice in verse 48, Jesus said to him as he is speaking to this father who approaches him, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And it's important to note there in verse 48, the you here in this verse is in the plural form. It's very hard to see that in English. But as Jesus was speaking to the Father, he's addressing the crowd that is around him, those of Israel. As he's speaking to the crowd, he says, I know that unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. See, Jesus was rebuking the crowd. He's saying that in Samaria, I did not do any signs and wonders. And the Samaritans received me, and and they believed in me. And yet you all gather around me now, seeking signs and wonders, even though those signs and wonders will not lead to true faith, as they uh, rarely do. And this is because, loved ones, this is because in order for us to truly believe, we know that God has to work in our hearts. We know that mighty displays of power and miracles are not sufficient to lead a person to salvation in Jesus Christ. We have so many examples of this throughout the scriptures. We could think about the first generation of Israelites in the wilderness, how uh, many of them perished in the wilderness because of unbelief. And yet we think about all the signs and wonders that that first generation witnessed. Even though they witnessed the very great miracles of God, right? they saw the plagues come upon the Egyptians. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They experienced and were fed by the manna from heaven and, and were satisfied by water from rocks. They saw God's very presence among them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And yet many of that first generation perished in the wilderness, because of unbelief. See, it's the Spirit of God who needs to work in our hearts in order for us to truly believe. He needs to enlighten our minds spiritually so that we may understand the things of God. He must take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. He must renew our wills. And as the confession says, And by his almighty power, he 
must turn us toward that which is good and effectually draw us to Jesus Christ. And the Spirit does this for true believers, and he does it in such a way that we are enabled to come most freely, having been made willing by his grace. And this is why John the Evangelist explained in our second reading this morning from John chapter 12 why Jesus was rejected by many of his own people, by many people in Israel. We read in John chapter 12, verse 37, that though he had done so many signs before them, so many wonders and miracles, dramatic things, we read there, they still did not believe in him. Verse 35, John clarifies. He says, in fact, they could not believe in him. And so, loved ones, as we think about the application of of this uh, idea, this is why it's one of the great dangers of of preachers today who label themselves as, as healers or as miracle workers and who, as a result, organize large events to demonstrate falsely, of course, that they can heal and and work miracles. See, not only are they teaching what is false, but the large crowds that often gather to see these great signs and wonders, these large crowds do not hear the gospel. See, friends, it's, it's through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of Christ, that people believe and are saved. It's through the preaching of the gospel that the word is made effectual to the hearts of God's people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 21. As Paul was ministering at the church in Corinth, and this was a church that was used to great displays of power, as Corinth was a very big city and had great orders. It was a very... Uh, powerful uh, area uh, as far as the Roman Empire was concerned, very influential. And Paul writes to them and he explains that it's not in the demonstrations of power that God shows himself. It's actually in a demonstration of, of weakness, the ultimate demonstration of that being in the cross of Christ, which shows uh, the power of God ultimately in delivering his people from slavery to sin, but when the world looks at the cross, all it sees is weakness and foolishness. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, loved ones, what we learn from John chapter 4 is that Jesus saves people through his preached word. That's ordinarily how He brings his people to faith. Miracles in the New Testament prove Jesus to be who he says he is. They 
confirm faith that he has already granted to his people, but he does not use miracles, he does not use signs and wonders on their own to attract crowds or to reach the unchurched necessarily. In fact, very clearly we see that apart from saving faith, as that saving faith is created in a person's heart by the Holy Spirit, miracles will often only serve to harden a sinful human heart against God. And that's where we, we see amid this crowd of unbelief, this crowd of unbelief, we meet a nobleman who came to Jesus and who showed true faith by believing Jesus' word. That's what we see in our second point this morning, the nobleman who believed Jesus' word. We read in verse 46 that at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. The word official uh, refers to the man's social status. He was probably part of the royal class. Maybe even a Gentile, we're not sure. We know for sure that he wasn't a commoner. He was a part of the upper class in that society. And we read in verse 47 of our text that when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And then verse 49, the official said to Jesus, Sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now what caused this man, this successful, well-respected, royal official, this nobleman, what caused him to come and to seek Jesus? You know, this man who probably other, otherwise, other than taking into account his son's illness, probably had a fairly comfortable life, a fairly posh life, we might say. What caused him to lose all hope in his own strength and in the strength of man and to come and seek the Lord Jesus? It was sickness. It was the illness of his son that caused him to seek out Christ. And it was the desperation and the difficulty that this sickness brought about in his son's life that drove him to Christ, we see very clearly. This is why uh, J.C. Ryle, he was a pastor in England in the 1800s, he writes about this, this idea of sickness, and he, he says, though sickness and disease are a result of the fall into sin, and though sickness and disease are painful for both the one suffering and the family and friends of the one suffering, he says, though these things are true, yet, he says, sickness is a real friend to mankind's soul. It's a real friend to mankind's soul. Why would he say something like this? Well, Ryle, he says, Friend, uh, sickness is a friend to mankind's soul because sickness helps remind us of death. It helps remind us of death. Now, most people live, especially in our society today, more so than in previous generations, most people live as if they are never going to die. They engage in business, pleasure, politics, and science as if you know, we're going to just keep going on living forever. 
They're like the rich fool in the parable who, Jesus says, plans for the future but doesn't plan for eternity. And Ryle notes that a difficult illness can often help to dispel such delusions that people have. People are humbled and they realize their frailty and the reality of death. James writes this very thing in chapter 4 of his epistle. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profits. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See, our lives are brief, short, like a mist, says James. We're here and then we vanish. And while we know this to be true, love, uh, sickness really drives home this reality to our hearts, really gives us perspective. So Ryle says, Sickness is a friend to mankind's soul because it reminds us of death. And he also explains that sickness is also a friend to mankind's soul because it makes us think seriously about God, about our souls, and about the world to come. An example of this is thinking about trying to share the gospel with a non-Christian friend and you're trying to do it at a baseball game between innings, the reaction might be like, really here? You want to talk about that? Like, let's just enjoy the game, right? Or over dinner. Like, you want to ruin our dinner talking about religion? No, let's talk about something else. But when that friend is on their deathbed and they're seeing the brevity of their life and they're seeing the end is near, they are often so much more willing to talk about eternal life and the things that really matter. See, sickness reminds us that we will all die someday. The rich man, the poor man, the wise and the foolish all will end up in the grave. And so our attention, therefore, is drawn up to God, to eternal matters. Our attention is refocused from the temporary to the eternal. And this is exactly what we see with this nobleman whose son was ill. He came because of his son's sickness. He came in desperation and humility and with true faith. Why do we say that he came in true faith? Well, because the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, what is true faith? And it gives such a wonderful explanation in question and answer 21. The answer is, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I, I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. And this is what we see in the nobleman's reception of Jesus' word. Notice that he believed when Jesus spoke to him despite the fact that he saw the reality take place. He did not visually see his son healed before him. When Jesus said, go 
your son is well. The nobleman didn't reply, okay, Jesus, you wait here. I'm going to go return home, see if he's okay, and, and just verify that what you said is actually true. Uh, no, instead we read in verse 50 that the man believed the word Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And we learn in verse 51 that as the nobleman left and was going down from the foothills in Cana to the Sea of Galilee, which was below sea level, we read that his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. That the thing that Jesus had promised indeed was true. The man's son was miraculously healed. And understandably, the nobleman was curious. He asks, so at what hour did he begin to get better? And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Well, the seventh hour is 1 p.m. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. The official son was, was healed precisely at the moment when Jesus said he would be healed. And we can only imagine, loved ones, the joy in the man's heart as he was hearing this, this wonderful news that my son is, in fact, well. He must have thought to himself that Jesus' word was not only true, but that Jesus was infinitely gracious in, in delivering his child from certain death. Friends, do you believe uh, Jesus' word? Do you believe what the Bible teaches? In his word, God graciously reveals to us how he planned our salvation in eternity and how in time Jesus came and he accomplished all that was necessary for us to be saved. And and we are meant to take his word and, and to believe all that it says about our justification, about our adoption into God's family, about the Spirit's ongoing work in our lives, and about the assurance of our future glorious resurrection on the last day. To believe the word that God has spoken to us as we have it in Scripture. Do you believe the word that God has spoken? Thirdly, we see in our text, the nobleman's household was blessed by his faith. The nobleman's household was blessed because the man believed the word of Christ. You can see this man, can't you, going home and embracing his son, and just rejoicing over the fact that his son was well. And then sitting his family down and explaining to them how he met Jesus and how he prayed to Jesus and how Jesus assured him that his son would live. And as a result of the nobleman's faith, we see that his whole household, his whole family came to faith. This is actually a pattern that we see throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, how the salvation of entire households right, is the result of one of the parents uh, turning to the Lord. For example, we read in Acts chapter 16 that the Apostle Paul uh, was called by a man in a vision to Macedonia, and that when he arrived in Philippi, the leading city in Macedonia, after a few days, Paul and some others began to share the gospel with some women we read that one of those women was named Lydia. And the Lord 
opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is, we know, a description of the effectual call that God wrought in her heart. And then we read that she and her household, her whole family, were subsequently baptized. But Lydia and her household were not the only Christian converts in Philippi that are spoken of in Acts chapter 16. Because the chapter goes on and teaches us that a jailer came to faith. And he and his whole family were also baptized. You see this wonderful pattern in the New Testament of the parents' influence over their household. An influence that brings about faith in the household. You know, I, I've often heard atheists use the argument uh, that the only reason that there are so many Christians in the world is because those Christians were born into Christian families. And I respond with, well, yeah, right? That's, that's the way God designed it. God has always worked through families to bring about his promises to his people. This is a pattern that we see from the earliest days, even from Adam and Eve. We see it in the Old Testament. There was an understanding in Israel that parents would teach and instruct their children in the ways of the Lord, and they would pray with them and, and set an example for them. We read, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And the same pattern we know applies even in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, for example, we read, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. And this is why in our church, during baptisms, I ask you parents very directly how if, uh, that, that you will vow before the Lord our God to bring your child up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. I ask uh, these words from the Book of Church Order. Do you now unreservedly commit in covenant relationship your son to God in promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example, that you will pray with and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy faith, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And, and we as parents, we make that vow before God. In fact, yes, I, I will strive after these things as God has commanded me and his word. And as a church, we also agree to help the parents raise these covenant children in the Lord. And we know that our households, our families are blessed when we as parents are faithful in keeping these vows. There's no guarantee necessarily that they will grow up and profess faith in Christ, but we as parents, God has given us means in order to raise our children up in faith and trusting that he and his time will work in their hearts according to his will. Ultimately, what we see here is that 
Our households, our families are blessed when we faithfully live before the Lord as parents, coram Deo, before his face. When we faithfully teach our children in the way that they should go. Like Noah, like Noah who faithfully brought his family into the ark and spared them of judgment. Noah, the federal head of his family, said, you need to get on this ark with me in order to be spared judgment. And and the Apostle Peter says that that was a type of baptism, of pointing to Christ. It's like many parents in Israel who took their children to Jesus, we read, that he might bless them, those parents acting in faith, bringing them to the Lord. And so, loved ones, let us believe God's word. Let us trust the one who spoke them and trust his wisdom and his sovereign plan. May God grant us faith and strength to do so. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you would make us to be those who desire to live under your word and its authority. We pray for the families of our church, that you would grant the wives in our church willing submission and joyful obedience to your word. We pray for the husbands, for leadership and godliness in our homes. We pray for grandparents as they minister to their grandchildren and teach them the faith. And we pray, especially this morning, for our covenant children. Lord, that you would work sovereignly in the hearts of our covenant children to draw them to yourself, and that you would remind us all that we are yours by grace, adopted into your family and partakers of eternal life through Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.